Alan, thank you very much for being on. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much also for coming to see me. Um, I'm hoping you're here for me rather than the free sandwiches as impoverished students. Um, so um, I'm Al Brown. Um, and I work at an organisation called DCDC, which is described as the MOD's independent think tank, um, because we're an organ of government, semi-independent is probably nearer to the truth. Um, and our job is to think about stuff and study trends and try and work out what it means for the future and then provide advice so that governments can form strategies and try and work out what to do about these things. Uh, and we do that by... Um, Plagiarising. We steal from clever people like Roald Dahl yourselves, um, which is one of the reasons I'm in the room. So I will get as least as much from you from the questions as you think you're going to get from me. Um, and there's a very long list here, and you're not meant to read all of it. It's meant to just look impressive as you scan across the list of people that we steal from. Um, and I wrote a blurb for this um, for uh, Rob, uh, and I went back and looked at it and realised that in that I promised to talk about some uh, strongly held certainties that we have about the future and why they might not be so, in, well, they might not be accurate, let's put it that way. Um, and I'll put them on here. Um, and at the end of that, if you recognise anyone has sent any of these to you before, then that's good. I hear these all the time. And then when I ask, what do you mean by that? Frequently the conversation sort of gets a bit awkward and embarrassing uh, as we start to get into details. And hopefully this will sort of skim over some of these bits because there's a lot to cover. So we have to go quite broad, but not terribly deep upon everything. Um, I'll just for uh, I forgot to mention Chatham House Rule. Do you want to just say something about caveats about military defence you don't speak for or anything like that? Oh, yeah, good point. So, um, as I'm lecturing here, I am not an organ of state <laughs> delivering government policy. Um, <laughs> you're picking the brains of a bloke called Al Brown stood at the front. That's just where I'm working. Thanks. Um, but they know I'm here, so they're happy with it. Um, as you're talking, so it's always good to start with a definition in uh, academic thinking. So, um, in this case, I would say that artificial intelligence, so something that sits at the top of the Gartner hype curve, so the peak of inflated expectations, but simultaneously manages to be something that is frequently underestimated and surprises us. It's quite an achievement. So something that's always better and simultaneously worse than we think is kind of worth understanding. And I use the term um, here as a sort of bucket term because you can find a million different definitions and they don't all terribly well fit together. But the useful way I found of thinking about this is it, is it consists of three things, really. One is algorithms, um, which is essentially just maths, much of which has been around since the 50s or 60s. But we didn't actually have the other components that allowed us to do anything with it. Um, and then in 2012, we had a revolution in sort of the next leg, which is the processing power, um, particularly graphics processing chips. Uh, and they allowed us to use some of those algorithms. But those also only became useful once we have the data to exploit. Uh, and this is where the internet comes in and of itself um, to be enormously valuable. Um, not only is it a tool for finding data, but it's also become a system which generates data, which makes a difference. Um, so one of the things we do at DCDC is we study trends, which means all of our presentations end up having graphs in them. Uh, and so I'm going to tell you some things that you know already, but that's fine, because Olympic athletes use priming by listening to uh, particularly inspiring music or watching films before they go and do an event. So I'm going to do the same to your Olympic level brains in this room and show you some of the things you know already to get you thinking in the right way. So this is Moore's Law. Um, some people talk about it running out. It kind of depends on how you choose to measure it. So there is a point where the size of the chip versus the size of the atom becomes a problem. But if you measure it in terms of calculations per $1,000, it continues to go strongly. Um, if you look at data generation, uh, that is increasing exponentially. Um, 
And if you look at why that is, you, again, going back to the internet, the connectivity of the internet matters. Um, so I think we had one million devices in 1992 connected to the internet. Um, I think we're about a billion now, and the 200 billion is the estimate by 2050. Probably slightly off on those figures, but kind of doesn't matter. It's a huge uh, growth thing. I think at 50 billion. Um, um, but if I tell you those things as mathematical facts, they won't stick in your brain. So if I show you another image to do that sort of priming thing, you will instinctively recognise these on almost an emotional as well as an intellectual level. So when we talk about data being generated and it occurring automatically, that's kind of why. Um, and that presents us with the sort of the first problem, which is there's an idea somehow that in all warfare you'll just be able to opt out. And that has its place in things like you wish to, you know, the line from Homeland if you want to be a successful terrorist, behaving like a 12th century man makes you quite difficult to find on the internet. Um, but that doesn't necessarily work for warfare. And an example I'd give you is that a typical MQ-9 Reaper sortie generates between 20 to 40 laptops worth of data. And when that comes back and it's presented to a human analyst who then sits there and tries to make sense of all that data, that necessarily means, in the tempo that warfare occurs at, that the vast majority of that information then goes on the cutting room floor. And if you're making information or making decisions on fractions of the data available to you, you are necessarily taking risk that you are not making the best decisions that you could do. So automation in how we, automation in how we process information is going to be fundamental in warfare, but also in all other aspects of life, I would say, too. So those graphs you saw about the increasing rate of data availability are true for all elements of econ economics and society as well. Um, in 2015, we had an interesting uh, development which kind of helped, response, helped the response to that. Um, and that then goes back to where artificial intelligence plays into this. So that's the first time on a standard benchmark test that machines became better than humans at recognising faces and attributing them to people. Uh, and you can see the error rates going down. And unsurprisingly, the error rate for humans has not changed because we're not evolving at that pace. So our ability to automate processing is going to necessarily depend on some of those technologies. And I described before how there's three constituent elements. I'd say there's two underpinning elements that make a difference as well. Uh, the first one, the image of the guy on the left there, are the subject matter experts who are able to do this. And at the moment, they are a relatively low population figure. Um, and that makes them highly sought after. Now, in the future, there are going to be economic drivers, which mean that everybody is going to be interested in doing more education, more research, and creating more specialists. But right now, they are a rare breed. And that ties into the second picture, which is to do with investment. And this is probably best described by a statistic in Dame Wendy Hall's report for um, the government's view of economics and technology when they were looking at artificial intelligence or machine learning. And they highlighted the fact that there's a process called acquihiring, which is where you go out as a large company and you acquire in order to hire these small startups or specialists. And the average per person is five to ten million pounds which is a very significant figure. Uh, and you'll have heard of sort of the amazing amounts that the tiny little company DeepMind were bought for uh, and things like that. So it necessarily means there's ferocious competition. And it's interesting as well, because if you are Google, you won't necessarily just go out and buy the startup that has a gap that you need to fill in your stable. You will buy things that you may already have because you can deny it to your competition. So, so quite often there are lots of routes to achieve the same end. And if you own all of them, you start to head towards being a natural monopoly. Um, and the reason I put up a picture here of um, the Manhattan Project is I think this tends to lead towards an interesting phenomenon, which I call the Manhattan problem. So 
In the Manhattan Project, Oppenheimer is running a program where the state has a monopoly on all the constituent ingredients. You can't go to the shops and buy uranium. Um, you don't have big stables of scientists wandering around that are free to be able for everyone. So Oppenheimer and a number of people are all working in a very closely confined environment with walls of secrecy built around it because they don't want that to leak out. And to be good at building an atomic bomb, indeed to build one, you need to bounce the ideas around those small groups of specialists in order to then accelerate the program to get further. Um, and the state had a monopoly on that, which is one of the reasons, of course, that the US had one, and then there's a gap of years before other major world powers start to catch up. In this instance, the reason I call it a problem is that the, the constituent ingredients are no longer really owned by states, but they are owned by technology giants. So the data, um, so 90% of all searches on the internet are done through Google. Um, the nearest competitor, Bing, I think has the same number of searches as are conducted just through Google Maps. So your ability to start hoovering up that sort of data and controlling it becomes important and then starts to belong in the commercial sector. And indeed, there are regula regulations that prevent states in certain countries from holding or acquiring data. So you'll have heard of GDPR uh, and how that is radically altering what people are allowed to hold, particularly state institutions. Uh, and there was a, a piece of regulation which has been succeeded now in the UK called RIPA, which was the Regulation of Investigation Powers Act, which stopped the state acquiring large amounts of data just because on its citizens. Um, and indeed, that sort of purchasing power doesn't really tend to belong to the states as well. It largely belongs to commercial organisations because they can exploit it better as well. Um, and you will have seen, um, you'll have seen Zuckerberg in front of the Senate recently. You'll have seen press statements on Cambridge Analytica. And part of how society feels um, is kind of emerging in that field. Um, but one thing, and this goes back to another of these certainties I would be slightly cautious of, is if you ever hear someone say, other people will be prepared to do things that we really wouldn't, well, that's always true. That's kind of us having a different moral framework to those around us, just in this room, is always a fact of life. And different social groups having different ethical frameworks is a natural state as well. I'd be very careful about any exceptionalism, assuming that you will always have some sort of moral standing which you sit on, which precludes you from doing something the other guys would. You tend to alienate your enemy a bit, but they will have different views. And I would suggest that if you were in North Korea, for example, your comfort with the concept of autonomy is very different to in a Western state. So if you live in an organisation where autonomy isn't socially acceptable, and yet you can control where people's families are, every piece of education they receive, and what kind of behaviours you expect, the idea that you would then accept in machines a vastly disproportionate level of autonomy with none of those same levers or institutions of confidence, I think is perhaps to paint an opponent in a negative light rather than actually looking at them for what they are. Um, and we also, have, you have to be careful as well about the, the idea of some sort of fixed ethical framework. We change our ethics all the time. And you can go back and have a look at things like in virtual fertilization, uh, genetic screening of things like Down syndrome, and you'll go back and you will find that a lot of the furore tends to disappear in retrospect as we change our ethical framework, as we become comfortable with changes in society and technology. And indeed, we're not even that stable now. So one third of Britain surveyed in this newspaper report said they feared the rise of the robot, but nearly a fifth were prepared to have sex with an android. That's not a very coherent position, emotionally speaking, even if it's not intellectually. Um, and one of the reasons we tend to have these images is because we're trying to do, we do a heuristic substitution. So we're not familiar with, we can't see the Google algorithm at work. It's just you know, a call and response effect on our computer. It doesn't mean anything to us on an intellectual and emotional basis. So we substitute in what we do know, uh, which is sci-fi. 
And this particular picture, and I mean this particular picture, is the most common image that people have for the rise of robots, because this is the one that is most licensed by newspapers. Um, so the Daily Telegraph printed four stories in four months using the same picture and the same story. So to find that your population then starts to develop a mental image of what the future looks like, and it looks a bit like this, is perhaps some surprise. Um, there are more nuanced versions, so the Zuckerberg um, and sort of fear of big data is one form. This is uh, from a video called Slaughterbots, put together by Institution of Life, which is from the campaign Stop Killer Robots. Uh, and this is, if you want a, an influence campaign study, this is brilliant. This is definitely how to shape public opinion, and it's really good. And the idea is at the beginning you have a sort of Steve Jobs-like military figure who stands up, he's created quadcopters with a little shape charges in. Uh, they go out to some people who are near-do-well types, never really clear who they are, uh, and then they end up going out and assassinating thousands of students based on things like Facebook profiles, uh, and leaving other students alone because they're suitably right or left-wing enough. Um, and it's, it's a terrifying image, and it's quite emotionally powerful, but one of the reasons it hasn't led to, sort of, it's frustrated the campaign for killer robots and others in, in, in the UN uh, who are looking at an institution called the GGE, which is looking at whether to ban lethal autonomous weapon systems, uh, and they're really struggling. Uh, and they're not struggling because they're evil people trying to dissuade it. They're struggling because of the challenge, which is trying to work out what it is you're going to ban. So nobody particularly wants to get rid of a heat-seeking missile, because we know those are in warfare and we're kind of okay with that. And nobody wants the silver version of Arnie, the skeleton that storms around and slaughters thousands of people. But you can't write a law on that. You need to find a boundary. And all of the things that are in that video kind of exist in the real world already. So there's very little in there, and you couldn't pick any one of those and say, this is the thing that we hate. You couldn't say facial recognition technology shall never be in service again, because otherwise passport keeps would get longer, and your friends would recommend you on Facebook and things like this. Um, so there are also, so it's, it's, there's no constituent single uh, technology, and autonomy is kind of an emergent term. You tend to think of it as being a, an ability to leave a system alone, to get along with its job without being supervised. But the problem is that that's contextual, and it's based on your assessment of risk, and it's based on your familiarity and the predictability that you've seen in that system in the past, which makes generating a law particularly difficult. There are issues that are very pertinent, so things like assurance and trust and how military is going to do collective training, which are sort of more, um, they're more like how sort of car assurance or airline assurance works in some ways, and those are um, probably going to get tackled first and will probably be the way that this starts to resolve itself in the same way as you have legislation around airlines, which we now all agree on. But I would be very wary of fixed conceits or views. Um, and there's another problem I'd say. So this is a system that sits on the North-South Korea border, looking upwards. Um, it's made by a subsidiary of Samsung. Um, it's a remote weapon station and what it does is it has the capability to do automatic detection and targeting. Uh, there are variants as well which can do voice recognition, uh, and indeed facial recognition, and right now it's, it's slaved back to a guy in a control room, so there's a bloke with a joystick deciding whether to shoot or not. Um, but fundamentally, it's actually only a software patch away from not needing that. Um, and uh, it kind of does everything that a sentry does, so it's great because he doesn't have to sit on the, in a little box getting rained on, um, but he's also more vigilant, so he doesn't get distracted by porn on his iPhone or um, you know, fall asleep because he's tired and he's had a big lunch, so none of those things happen. Um, and yet, this is something created by a man in America who doesn't like kids on his lawn. This is one of the fundamental problems with the idea of a ban, in that this guy has put this together, and it's essentially the same system, you know, more or less, 
Um, and yet he's running it off a laptop, no different to the thing over there running it, and he's used some actuators and some servers and some software that's downloaded from the internet. So one of the problems that we've got is that this is not, you know, in that idea that there's a Steve Jobs-like figure out there leading all those technologies, it's not the case. So going back to that kind of Manhattan problem idea, this is very much being developed in the civil commercial sphere, these technologies. They're accelerating in that world first. Um, and the example I give you here is somebody who's got a really old ropey mortar, and yet if you were to say that they've managed to put a sighting system on it that has the world's most advanced micro-accelerometers, it's linked to a GPS mapping system that's also a communication system that also does azimuth and has a digital compass and can get live updates on weather and barometrics. It sounds really cool, and then you say, I'm talking about an iPad and I just stuck it on the side. You're able to you know, generate some quite complex effects or quite complex technological things by using quite simple off-the-shelf <coughs> technologies. The US Marine Corps have got a great phrase for this. They call it the democratization of precision. And I think it's going to lead to a lower cost of entry to what you know precision warfare used to be a first world nation sport, and it's not going to be for very long. Um, but don't just think about it in terms of technology as well. Think instead of old actors being able to do new things, um, I would say that you have to think about it in social structures as well. So that is a self-driving car, one of millions that are out there. If I was a member of the Animal Liberation Front, um, one of the things I really like doing is bombing, hunting, and life sciences and trying to kill the people there. Um, and I have, in, animal, in my animal, animal Liberation Front persona, no tolerance for being a martyr, or even being harmed, or even being arrested. And right now that limits me to sending crappy parcel bombs in the mail to try and get someone at Huntington Life Sciences, which, funny old thing, they're a bit used to picking up. Uh, and it does limit what you can send. Um, if, in the future, I can Uber my bomb to tar the target, I no longer need to have somebody pressed into service behind the wheel to have access to what has been described as the poor man's cruise missile. So the nature of violence is going to change, and it's almost impossible to regulate out all of these things, I would say. Uh, I wouldn't say also, some people think that this just leads to a completely flat playing field and everybody's going to have everything. Um, you will have an economic divergence. So again, a bit of footage from now rather than the future. So the world's cheapest reaper, um, which is basically a small uh, grenade which has been attached uh, with a slightly silly balloon-like uh, tail structure and somebody's flying a quadcopter and uh, bombing some of their opponents. Um, and the ability to do that is not the same as the ability that is shown here, uh, and there are other variants, so you can see Locust or Perdix on the internet, which are generated by the US, which are pretty similar. So this is developed by a Chinese university uh, in consultation with their defense forces, and the idea here is to build a swarm of systems which are able to interact. So you know, there isn't going to be a one-size-fits-all solution either. Um, and I would also say that some of the things are, the simplicity of the idea can also matter. So this is uh, a little remote-controlled aircraft that can land itself on a wall and then take off again and fly somewhere else, made by uh, Sherborne or Sherbrooke University, I forget which. Um, and their idea here is that, actually, if I'm trying to look for people in an aircraft zone, uh, sorry, an earthquake zone, um, my ability to survey the area is limited by battery life. So if I can park, then I can extend the, rate, the duration of my sensor. Um, but actually, parking on the floor is difficult because everything has fallen over. And it says earthquake here, but you, know, you could, if you strip the right enough, easily imagine that would be Syria somewhere today. Um, but walls are self-cleaning. Data doesn't stay there. So your ability to park actually becomes quite useful. Um, 
but the battery life issue could be extended by another university which are looking at turning the propeller that sits on the top into a little wind farm that regenerates the battery as it sits and hangs on the wall. So you start to change some of the size, weight and power achievements. Um, uh, some of these ideas are also farmed from uh, other variations, so you know, you'll have seen stuff that's biomimetic. So again, one of the ideas I sort of present to you is it's going to be a plethora of different things. We tend to think about robots back again in that sort of Arnie picture, but there'll be all sorts of shapes and sizes. Um, and they won't all be fixed, um, so you know, not all solid. I also like to put this one up because then, as I look across the audience, I can try and work out who the one in five are from that newspaper report. <laughs> um, some people think that the proliferation of these systems across the future battle space means that there isn't going to be any more surprise. Everything will be seen and anticipated in the future. But, um, oh, sorry, I've missed a bit. Uh, one of the other things that I think artificial intelligence enables is going back to. Um, that drone there. The other draw for power that's quite significant is if I'm permanently broadcasting a signal, I drain my batteries quite quickly. And in a military sense, being noisy has always been bad. Uh, and it's true in the electromagnetic spectrum as well as walking around in jingly armour in the dark. Um, so the ability to compress that data imagery, so I'm not sending you a full motion video, but I'm now actually sending you the word clank, means I can send a lot less data, I can be a lot more quiet, and I can conserve my battery life. So the ability to de develop these algorithms, stick them on those systems, is going to change how the communication works as well. Um, which indeed will help with that. So the volume of data, not just getting to the individual, but being processed across the airwaves matters. Uh, the electromagnetic spectrum is already too full. Um, and we have to get into the person as well. So this isn't just going to be how it gets into the robot, it's going to be how it gets into the human who makes decisions. And this is an example from Aeroglass. Uh, so the idea here was that rather than pilots having to sort of read and memorise their folder before they take off, uh, they can actually have all of that data and it's put in the, the very cool set of glasses that you'll see the operator using. Um, they're very stylish. Um, and it presents the data in a way that's fast and intuitive because speed of decision matters in all forms of life, but definitely in warfare. Uh, and you can see how the immediate read across to how people conduct warfare and could make better decisions with better information is going to be not just a robotics thing, but a how you integrate with the people thing. Um, going back to that idea of those little sensors being everywhere, meaning that there's no more surprise anymore, I don't think that's true. And um, The first example I would give you is chess. So in chess, you have a completely glass battlefield. You have perfect situational awareness. You know where everything is. You know all of the rules and the capabilities of the pieces. And you also know the tempo as well, which is unusual. So your opponent takes a turn, you take a turn, etc. But if you play against a better player, you will still find yourself being surprised. Um, the other thing I would say too, uh, and I'm going to add a quiz just to see if people are awake. Does anyone know who that is? Well, Google's SpaceNet algorithm is absolutely certain that that is Miller Jojovic. <laughs> and the reason that it's certain is because of these slightly Timmy Mallet-like glasses there. Again, style doesn't seem to be a feature in this presentation. Um, and what it's doing is, it's a thing called adversarial example. So the best description of it is on the top left here. So the picture on the top left of the panda is an original source picture. The crazy static looking box are some changes to the colors of that picture that are really subtle. And they are added to that first picture to create the picture on the right. And what it's doing is it's increasing the signals that a computer sees that give it a different outcome. So you can see the scores below there, again from Google Net's recognition system. So it's 57% confident that it's a panda, and then you and I see what looks like the same picture, and yet it is 93% confident that it is a gibbon. 
Uh, and that sort of, the subtle pictures there, or the subtle pixel changes of what are actually in that set of glasses that make the computer think that that is Milija Jovic. Um, it's not just linked to that side, uh, that style as well. There are more simple versions that are out there. So the crazy looking picture on the bottom left, a slightly is a fractal pattern developed by an artist called Adam Harvey, um, who has sort of a big brother theme to a lot of his designs for fashion. And it's a fabric pattern. And what it does is that is the, the set of shadows, gaps, distances, the facial recognition software is looking for. And as you change the folds of your clothes as you move around, it changes those distances. And when you walk past the facial recognition camera, it doesn't just go, aha, there's Rob. It says, there's Rob, and Rob's name is buried in a list of thousands of other names. And if there are enough, and the computer isn't wheeled enough, it just has a little overflow moment and shuts down. Um, otherwise, it has to shift through to find Rob out of all of those other names, which probably correlate to real people as well. Um, so deception is alive and well. I like this one. So this shows it in live, real time for something that's 3D. So you can see this live picture there, and it was being sort of largely recognised as a turtle. They 3D printed it here with some of those adversarial patterns in it, and you can see it's largely consistently being recognised as a rifle. So the prospect of surprise disappearing, or indeed machines being infallible in their judgement, seems to be extremely likely. Um, these four people are all interesting. Does anyone know how they, what they have in common? Well, the answer is that none of them exist. Oh, one winner at the back. Um, and so these are all generated by computers that were trying to create from you know, their own imagination, if you would like a better term, um, what a human looks like. And you can see it increases quite radically. So the prospect of deception isn't just a we can fool machines, but it's increasingly going to be machines will allow us to fool each other as well. Um, and another example I'll give you is live real-time video stitching. Um, now, some of you will know this from slightly more unseemly sources, and I'll leave that to your own morals. Um, but you can see here, somebody's able to, in real time, change the expressions, and indeed there are other videos of people changing the voices. Uh, and if you stare at George Bush's mouth on this, it looks a little bit grainy. But it's worth remembering that it will never be this bad again. This is only going to get better. So our ability to say seeing is believing on the internet is going to diminish. And this is an area that is rapidly increasing. Uh, in capability. Oh, I know that jumped a little bit forward there. Um, and speaking of things that are online, uh, so DeepMind is a, is a fascinating organisation that's leading the way in a lot of this. Um, one of the things that is interesting, I think, is in the world of cybersecurity, one of the things that professional cybersecurity analysts are worried about is how some of these things can transpose. So DeepMind's next trick is to try and win a game um, called StarCraft. Uh, the interesting thing about StarCraft from a machine learning perspective is that you don't get to see all of the battlefield. The other side are shrouded in fog until you get there and have a look. Um, they aren't the same as you. They don't necessarily have the same pieces. Um, you play real time, so there isn't a turns thing going on. Um, and there's a long-term versus short-term strategy component. So if I take all my guys and run over and punch all your guys in the face at the very beginning, do I do that or do I go and build, send my guys off to build an arms factory so that we're coming back later with tanks versus maybe you're doing something in an immediate term. So there's a series of judgments that need to be made. Um, and the thing that is interesting to the cybersecurity world is that this gets, could be readily transposed to what's called advanced persistent threat techniques. Um, and how that works in cybersecurity is if you sir, have a, a shield wall in front of you protecting yourself, and I am a very able hacker, what I would do is I'd come up and I'd just prod your shield wall 
until I find the gap. So I'm looking for a weakness in your system. But more than that, I might do something which causes you to move one of your shields or respond in something. So I might find a solid wall, but if I keep pressing here, I notice you move this thing here, and I can, that exposes a weakness, and then I can get him. And right now, that requires very skilled hackers and a lot of time and expertise, because they're manually reading code, recoding, and having another go. But if you're doing that at the cyclical rate of minute machine learning, your tempo becomes vastly faster. And so this means that not only in offense, in terms of trying to hack in, but in terms of defense, you are going to find that systems like this are probably going to dominate the online version of cyber attack and cyber defense. And the other thing as well is you don't have to understand it from the ground level. In the same way as a pilot does not have to be able to build an aeroplane to be able to operate it, it just needs to know how to fly. You don't need to be able to code this for first principles. If you can take it, reorient it to a target, and send it off on its way. So it lowers the threshold for some of those sorts of attacks. Um, another factor that's going to change, I think, the economics of war is, um, is the idea of sort of huge headquarters and massive logistics supply bases like Bagram or Camp Bastion. Uh, and the reason I say that is the idea of what's called parasitic warheads. So if you can really accurately target something, the more accurately you can pick your target, the less explosives and metal you need to take to the target end. So if I can fly, if I can send a small unmanned drone to fly to Camp Bastion and it's looking for the wings of aeroplanes and it just puts bomblet holes through those, I'm starting to make some really expensive aircraft unflyable at relatively low risk. And there's a great quote which says that lining up all these aircraft on the runway might be the next version of lining up battleships at Pearl Harbor. Um, so there are some old lessons that I think we'll have to relearn. So in the Cold War, the whole point of an army wasn't to stand in some big camp somewhere to move and hide in forests. And one of the lessons I think that's coming out of the Ukraine where both sides are using hard to detect UAVs is that both sides have to behave as if the other side has air superiority. Because you know, whoever's fighter is dominant doesn't determine whether somebody is looking down from the sky at you. And if you are seen soon after, you can be targeted with artillery. So the concept of a benevolent sky, I think, is going to disappear. Um, it opens up other tactics as well. So there's the idea of uh, pilot tunneling. So a great example here is uh, David Perkins, a US general, pointed out that a US ally in the Middle East had fired a $3 million Patriot missile to destroy a drone that had been fired, which cost $200 from Amazon. Uh, and it was successful, but Frank Hoffman describes this as a strategy sin. Uh, my defensive measure cost vastly more than your proactive measure. And Perkins went on to say, and if I was the guy that had fired the drone, I'd be delighted because I'd now be going out and spending as many, creating as many of these $200 drones as I can, because I know it costs you $300 or $3 million every time you, I do that. Um, so the prospect of overwhelming things is going to change. Uh, and, you know, there's the, one of the other arguments, I should have put this at the front, is it's all going to be swarms. I don't think it's as simple as that again. So there are environments where it makes loads of sense to be a swarm. So, for example, one missile equals one subset of this radar field that has disappeared. But there are real-world size, weight, and power issues that come in. And the reason that we have things like AWACS is for early warning. And if you are looking over a border, you need a really big radar dish to look a wrong way. So the concept of your little swarm suddenly starts to become not early warning. It just tells you what's crossing the border. So it's going to be a mix of the big and the things we recognize now and the exquisite, along with new systems. Um, uh, and there are other practical prospects that people gloss over. So some people have described the advantage of having you know, autonomous armoured vehicles like tanks. I don't think necessarily swapping the humans out for robots is going to be the way that this thing plays out sensibly. 
And the example I would give you here is the, a robot tank has been designed and created. And it could be part of a platoon of, let's say, four tanks, where three of them are robot tanks, and the one that sits at the back is the man tank. And that sounds fantastic, because the robots can go forward and do all the dangerous stuff, and the humans at the back making the sort of advanced tactical judgment, until one of those tanks has a moment where the equivalent of an arm of a flat tire is throwing a track. And now the only people who can get out and put the track back on the tank are the crew. And you only have one crew. So I've now gone from having four tanks to having no tanks. Whereas when they were all manned, I went from having four tanks to having three tanks. And sometimes those small, real-world pragmatism moments are going to matter. Um, there was an armoured guy who was showing this, a uh, uh, tank driver, um, and he hated the idea. And it wasn't the tank track thing. It was the weapon cleaning. Because his whole prospect was, at the end of the battle, they're going to spend the next two days exhausting themselves just cleaning the weapons. Um, so there's small pragmatic realities that are going to make a difference. And understanding how these things play out. Um, and I'll, I'll run a video here. Um, first of all, because you get to see Tom Cruise die a lot, which is always fun. Um, so this is from a film called The Edge of Tomorrow. Uh, and this goes back to this idea that they're going to be super brilliant tactically. Um, it's worth understanding that Tom Cruise has the same effect in this film. So he starts out rubbish at fighting this war in the same way as Alpha Zero was rubbish at fighting or playing chess the first time he had a go. And yet in four hours, he got us up to Grandmaster level. But like Tom Cruise, it's fighting the same battle again and again and again and again. And there are changes within it, but it's kind of always the same battle. One of the reasons we always say that we're ill-prepared for the next war is because we've never fought the same war twice. Mm -hmm. They're always different. And so your ability to sort of plug a machine in and it be optimized kind of depends on your ability to generate the data you need or have a repetition rate that allows you to learn quickly enough. And another example I'll give you is fruit flies and elephants. So um, people study genetics in fruit flies because they breed fast, mutate fast, and die fast. If we had studied <coughs> genetics in elephants, the experimenters would die at a faster rate than the experiment. So there's a fairly good reason we pick those ones. And I think the same sort of understanding of what artificial intelligence is, how it adapts and learns, is going to matter. So the types of problems are going to shape what we can actually use to do these things. Um, and it plays itself out in funny ways. We also tend to think, we talk about the economics and mass unemployment, um, but which jobs are automatable is interesting. So there is quite often an assumption that the lowest paid jobs will be the ones that go in droves because they can't be that hard because we don't pay people to do them that much. But it's wrong. And the example I would give you is on the left here, you have the autopilot who is able to fly the 747 because it's doing things we think are complicated but are just maths. Uh, and you can automate that. Whereas the lady on the right there has to do all sorts of things which we find really difficult to codify, like dealing with troublesome customers, you know, trying to find who really did order the vegetarian meal, um, all of that sort of stuff. You know, very poor situations for a computer to code. Um, which means that you know, there are counterintuitive examples. So uh, in legal, uh, legal case study reviews and in diagnostics, there's loads of automation happening, which is affecting some of the people we would typically regard as the brightest investor society, so doctors and lawyers. Uh, and yet fruit pickers and office cleaners are proving remarkably difficult to automate, at least economically. Um, and at the top of the picture, I'd say going back to that things that you codify uh, idea. So Theodicies describes fear, honour and, and interest as being central to strategy. We struggle to articulate what those things are to ourselves. The possibility we can reduce those to maths seems a very distant prospect. So the odds of machine learning doing what we would be happy with as strategy seems quite far away. Although they will affect strategy because there'll be tools that matter. So understanding relative strengths becomes important. So machines are faster than us. 
they are already proving better at detection and recognition. Uh, they are typically more efficient at things that we can codify. Uh, they are better at optimizing in all sorts of ways, especially problems that which we, we have a lot of data for, or we can cycle quickly through. Um, and they also don't, you know, depending on loss of power, get tired, sleepy, or distracted. Um, but they are no good at context. So the ability of a robot to walk into a room and make a determination as to whether that's a child who has picked up a rifle or a child soldier is extremely difficult and could well just be an intuitive, almost unconscious act by a soldier walking into a room who has the context to support it. Um, right now, they're pretty bad at doing allegory. There's a big push to try and change that. Um, but the ability to take lessons in one environment and reapply them in another environment is a very powerful human tool. And it is no mistake that all of the longest running religions are books of allegory, because the lessons that were written about worlds that no longer exist can still be applied by humans successfully, or you know, that's how they're viewed and why they are still valued. Um, and yet that sort of tech capability is not within the realm of the machine at the moment. Uh, new, for the obvious reasons that there's no data. So if it's the first time something has been seen, the machine can't train on it. Um, versatility, so you can take a human and you can kind of do all sorts of things moderately well, if not perfectly, but quite often to take a machine and put it on a new project requires re-engineering. And there's a thing called catastrophic forgetting at the moment, which is if I teach a machine to be amazing at chess, and then I teach it backgammon, it kind of forgets all of the things that it's learned about chess. There are some progress, there is some progress being made to try and put sort of elastic bands in the memory, but it's all pretty nascent, and right now they tend to be as bad as if you started with a completely blank slate machine. Um, uh, and one of the one with this will probably be one of the first to disappear is going to be complex manual handling. And it's if you want an idea of how difficult something that we have evolved over thousands of years to do really well, so we take it for granted, I would suggest go home, sit on your hand, the story isn't going where you think it's going, and then try and strike a match. And you'll probably go through the whole box of matches before you get anywhere near successfully doing it because you're relying on unconscious feedback, pressure, modulation. There's a whole raft of things that you're doing that right now is why machines are doing squishy fruit rather than actually packaging stuff. And if you know firms like Ocado who've managed to automate everything else in their supply chain apart from irregular handling of soft objects. Um, oh, and again, the pandas on the bottom there because they still make machine mistakes that seem completely alien and that we would never make. Um, so it's going to be a cocktail of human and machine, is my lesson. I'd say that there isn't just going to be the machines coming out of it. And how you apply human consciousness, as it becomes more economical to have lots of cheap points of presence, means that human consciousness naturally and logically must become proportionally scarcer on the battlefield compared to the number of points of presence you now have. And you then start to get to a place where you can't afford to waste it on doing filling in Excel spreadsheets or other stuff that is mechanistic and done. You're going to have to start to preserve it for doing the context judgment things that you know the machine is weak at. Uh, and I could give you an example of how that will package up. It won't just be one bloke and one machine. You'll have teams that do this, probably with some sort of overseer. My on symbol is because I don't have a symbol for artificial intelligence. And the brackets are where those people start to put their consciousness and their intelligence and what they're thinking about. And there will be some places. So on the far right there, you have one drone, and maybe he's near the French president. So you really don't want any emergent good ideas from the machine that you weren't expecting. So that's you sitting there very carefully with one person flying that system. And if it's complex to do, you'll find multitasking diminishes, which is one of the reasons you're not allowed to text while you drive. Um, so you'll focus your consciousness there. You might find that you are actually controlling one thing, which is in fact a swarm. So you'll do it in concert with the machine. So you'll say, take the swarm over there, which you can give as an instruction, but the machine needs to coordinate because there's no way you can fly 50 aircraft at the same time. 
It will also be how you put together packages of things. So the little bracket on the left there might be that we want to have a surveillance system that's not carrying any heavy metal because we want it to be up for a long time. We want something with a gun on the floor so that we can actually do the shooting. And you want them in a concerted team of things that are heterogeneous to maximize different kinds of strengths but you kind of want to have one person to drive and fly it all so that you're minimizing your decision action cycle. And then there will be other things where, for example, the AWACS on the top left, you'll, you don't want to have to spend any time thinking about something. You just want it to sit there and say, right, there are no fighters now. I'm not going to pay any attention to that because looking at a blank screen is a waste of that consciousness. You will go out there and you will fly around in this area and you will shout when something happens and otherwise just let me know when you're going to run out of fuel. So it's going to be how you balance those things. And it isn't going to all arrive overnight, and I think the way it's going to arrive is going to be in a kind of series of overlapping phases. And I couldn't give you a time frame. I can't tell you in 10 years it'll be this or that. And I think if anyone does, they're either very, very, very clever or wrong. Um, and it's going to probably play out in the same way as air power did. So at the beginning, you used to have battleships, which were the kings of the sea. And in the First World War, that was, you know, that was the control of the oceans and seas. And between the two wars, you added enormous amounts of money to get incremental improvements in what were essentially the same systems. So by the time the Second World War starts, you know, they're bigger, they've got better armour, they can shoot further, and they're more accurate. But they've paid a fortune to do that. And yet the little box kite things that were as likely to fall out of the sky in the First World War and kill the pilots as the other guy was likely to shoot you down, have had tens or hundreds of dollars for much bigger jumps in technology. And the three pictures you see there are a string of battleships which have you know, tiny little planes flung off on catapults in an almost suicidal -like manner. Um, the middle picture is a Sopwith Camel taking off from HMS Pegasus, which is a World War I aircraft carrier. And then by 1942, you know, the battleship is still the most amazing thing in close combat, but it's kind of irrelevant because it can never get there because the aircraft carrier was able to just defeat it at range. So I think we'll see the same sort of thing. So the first things will be stuff that augment what we already do because we're not in a position to understand those technologies well enough to know which are definitely going to change stuff. Um, and then they'll operate in parallel. And then as they get better and better, there'll just be some things which become redundant because they're no longer applicable. But I also don't think it's going to just be one box. And the re reason there's a picture of a radio there is because it's kind of more of a component level technology in some ways. So in the same way as the French probably had the best tank at the start of World War II, um, it was actually the combination of the armour, the artillery, and transportation, and people, but all melded together through the medium of the radio that allowed Blitzkrieg to be as successful as it was at the start of that fight. Um, I have given this to a number of uh, people who all tend to get very depressed because they see all of the threats in this. I don't think there is one natural automatic winner. Clearly I've depressed that man there because he's feeling. Um, but um, I think the future is neutral. I don't think any one person <coughs> naturally owns this. There are places that have natural advantages um, because of research that is going on. And if you do things, to, uh, there's something called science metrics, which is the study of patents. Uh, and the three leading countries in the world for filing patents are currently uh, the US and China, and depending on how you measure it, the order changes there, and then the UK. So being in that bracket is certainly very healthy for understanding how these things will play out. But the fact that it's going to be driven by the commercial sector largely means that quite a lot of it is going to be available for everyone. So it's going to be proactive experimenters who make the most of this, I think, in the same way as was true for the emergence of Edna. Um, and speaking of proactive, inventive people, 
Um, this is, oh, <laughs> sorry, I was going to show you this. That's a test from yesterday that I was done. Um, and that's the prove you're not a robot. Um, now, if I'm labeling street signs, who do you think that is of value to on Google who are trying to build self-driving cars? And am I really proving that I'm not a robot? Or am I a slave doing their data labeling for them? <laughs> Um, especially since the old capture process was beaten in, I think, 2017 by a robot. So there are robots out there that can beat other forms of this test. So it's all going to be about how you're clever in getting the data you need. Um, and on that one, I'll go back. Um, let's see if there are any questions. Oh, thank you very much. First of all, thank you.